This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now here is Janet Mefford. I suppose this is not surprising to many Americans, but the Supreme Court, as you know, on Friday refused to hear Texas v. Pennsylvania. They said the state of Texas's motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing under Article 3. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. Very disappointing. A lot of people are very upset. I, I really had the first reaction that went like this. Let me, let me get this straight. So you're the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that found a faux right to privacy in the Constitution that doesn't exist and did one of the most horrendous legal arguments, judicial arguments, uh, decisions of all time in handing down the Roe v. Wade decision. That that was fine. Then in 2015, you handed down the Obergefell decision. And I understand that the same justices were not on the Supreme Court at the times of these decisions. But let's just look at the court as a whole. You, you Because of dignity, you came up with the idea that two men can get married and two women can get married because of dignity. Yeah, that's not in the Constitution either. Nor is marriage something that is left to the federal government in the first place. It's a principle of federalism. Marriage has always been handled by the individual states. But we can't listen to an argument here from the state of Texas, backed up by numerous other states, backed up by a number of people in the House of Representatives, Republicans, over 100 Republicans in the House of Representatives, who are really, really concerned and justifiably so, about the disenfranchisement of millions of voters. Because when you have a certain number of swing states pulling all kinds of shenanigans and violating their own constitutions and violating their own laws, that does something to the, you know, the, the, the regularity of the election and the fact that now the rest of the people who are voting in other states feel like, well, what does my vote matter if everybody else can cheat or if just a few states in this case can experience election fraud, then how, how can I ever go to the polls again in good faith? But the Supreme Court says, no, nah, we're not going to take it up. You don't have any standing. Okay. And then you have people who are ostensibly on the right trying to make the argument that everybody knew this would fail. This was just political theater. No, I don't think it was political theater. I really don't think it was political theater. And I don't think we've seen the last of the reverberations of this ridiculous last few months, actually the ridiculous last four years. It's quite overwhelming and there's not enough time for me to get into every thought I've ever had on it. That, that kind of summarizes it. But Maria Bartiromo over on Fox talked to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton yesterday about this issue of the lawsuit and asked him, what do you make of the Supreme Court saying you had no standing? This is how it went. Cut one. I don't know, because if my people are harmed, which I, I view them as having been harmed by the fact that other states didn't follow their election laws and didn't follow the Constitution, how, how do I address the fact that my, my voters are affected by a national election 
that potentially was not done correctly where there was fraud and, and, and that state law and federal law was not followed. So, you know, I don't know what else we could have done other than ask the court to, to, to at least hear our arguments. So tell me about that argument, because I know Justice Alito and Thomas wanted to hear it. They thought you had a you thought you had good momentum. Look at everybody who supported you. 18 states with with briefs supporting the case. Six states joined the case. You had support of 126 House Republicans. Make the case right here, AJ. So and you're right. We had tremendous momentum. And that was only we filed this Monday at almost midnight. So that was after only you know, three or four days of, of the case being filed. And there was tremendous support and there was tremendous interest in hearing the answer, hearing the arguments. So our argument was pretty simple. These states are responsible per the Constitution. The state legislature is responsible for setting up laws as it relates to electing electors. And when those laws are deviated from by local officials, they violated state law and they violated the U.S. Constitution. That, in effect, disenfranchises my voters because we in Texas follow those laws. And now we're, we're subjected to the fact that maybe, you know, in Pennsylvania, for instance, they, were, they went from 233,000 mail-in ballots four years ago to 2.5 million. And they, a lot of those were not signature verified. So we don't know if any of those ballots were fraudulent and we can't go back and check. Yeah, he's right about that. Any plan B? Well, millions believe this election was fraudulent and Paxton agreed. This is cut too. Well, I can understand their feeling because, you know, there, there were certainly lots of examples of fraud. And as I said, we can't even, the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, we can't go back and verify whether there was actual fraud in, in a high percentage of these votes. So going forward, I think the Trump I think the Trump campaign is taking our arguments that we tried to get in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. They are now going to take those, I think, state by state, because I think they are legitimately good constitutional arguments that don't depend on actually proving every little instance of fraud. Well, the problem is you have the electors voting on Biden today. It's too late. It's over. It's done. That was the one Hail Mary that they were trying to do to the Supreme Court. It's why so many people got behind it, because they said this is our last chance. And Paxton said it's our last chance. It didn't work. So... We move forward. What I found interesting was this column that's been making the rounds by Paul Weston, a British politician. And I thought some of his comments were very interesting as somebody who is English. He said, if this gross subversion of democracy is not dealt with in a satisfactory manner by the lawyers, then I see no reason, no reason at all why America should not descend into violence and potential civil war in the worst case scenario or simply lose all confidence in any future elections as a best case scenario, which can only and inexorably lead to the worst case scenario again. He goes on to say, it's really a great article, and it's a transcript of a video that he did. He said, destroying the democratic foundations of America will certainly have real-world consequences. When Trump won the presidency in 2016, the far left cried Russian collusion and displayed their visceral hatred across the entire left-wing spectrum. But their anger wasn't based on the undermining of democracy. Their anger was merely that of the petulant, spoiled child denied a shiny bauble. Their anger was lukewarm, false, unjustifiable. Their anger was mere political posturing, and they now think the anger of Trump supporters is the same. 
But how wrong they are. The anger of Trump supporters is white hot. It's incendiary. It's real and entirely eminently justifiable. And it is not the anger of the loser. It is the anger of the wronged and is about so much more than Trump. This is about the democratic future of the United States of America. It goes on. You should read the whole thing. But I could not agree more. And in the midst of this, the question I keep coming back to, and I've been mulling this over during the entire weekend Is the state of the nation what it is because of the state of the church? This is a question that has haunted me, not just over the weekend, but for years, as I have watched over the last some 12 years as a national talk show host, looking at political events and watching different things happen over the course of more than a decade. I think there is a case to be made that there is a direct tie between what God is doing to our nation and how we have rejected him. And I want to get into that in a little bit. In the midst of all this, You might have seen yesterday trending on Twitter some comments from Beth Moore, the women's Bible study teacher who's gone woke. Listen to these tweets. I don't know what they mean. She says some very weird things. She says, I do not believe these are days for mincing words. I'm 63 and a half years old and I've never seen anything in these United States of America. I found more astonishingly seductive and dangerous to the saints of God than Trumpism. This Christian nationalism is not of God. Move back from it. What are you, nuts? Fellow leaders, we will be held responsible for remaining passive in this day of seduction to save our own skin while the saints we've been entrusted to serve are being seduced, manipulated, used, and stirred up into a lather of zeal devoid of the Holy Spirit for political gain. And God help us, we don't turn from Trumpism to Bidenism. We do not worship flesh and blood. We do not place our faith in mortals. We are the church of the living God. We can't sanctify idolatry by labeling a leader our Cyrus. We need no Cyrus. We have a king. His name is Jesus. What do you even say to this nonsense? Well, I have a lot to say about this nonsense. It is not wrong to love the United States and to understand that it's a five alarm fire in this country. And I continue to argue and maintain that if the Church of Jesus Christ were healthy, we might be in a very different position right now. I'll get into that when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, 
they choose life. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support Preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28 or five ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Again, the question I've been asking, how much of the state of the nation is what it is because of the state of the church? You know, Dan Fisher from Fairview Baptist Church in Oklahoma and I have discussed the black-robed regiment several times that I'm going to be bringing Dan on in the next couple of weeks to talk again about the issue of Romans 13. But Dan has done tremendous work about the black-robed regiment going back to the colonial period and noting how important the revolution was and how well it succeeded because so many Christian pastors got behind the effort. And they understood that the fight for freedom was a Christian duty. And I agree completely, but we're not seeing that today. Here's an example. This is from the Christian Post just a few days ago. Highlands Community Church in Renton, Washington is trying to find healing after losing three pastors in the last few months, including the lead pastor who resigned after elders discovered he lied to them about the details of a DUI arrest. They also referenced uh, there were multiple allegations of sex abuse against the church's former executive pastor who was fired over the summer. I see so many of these stories, it's not even funny. And think of all these big name pastors and Christian leaders who have fallen or come under a really heavy cloud of suspicion over bad deals, you know, bad moral situations. You know, latest has been Carl Lentz of Hillsong Church. And maybe you followed this over at The Spectator that had a very interesting article called The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. Instead of making me want to become more like them, the writer says, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Isn't that interesting? Carl Lentz, who hung around with Justin Bieber and was a big celebrity pastor, cool as cool can be, falls just like so many of them have fallen. And the writer says there's an irony in how whenever Christians seem to attach themselves to mainstream culture with all its vices in the hope of drawing people towards God, they seem to get drawn towards vice. This is non-Christian writing, completely completely right. The last paragraph, I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That sadly appears to have been true of Lentz and his celebrity acquaintances. And I have a whole list of celebrity pastors who have fallen just in the last several years. And it seems to be happening more quickly, more frequently, and more tragically. What is going on? Here's another story. 
a mega church report has just come out. Mega Church 2020 from the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Here's a quote from Warren Bird, who's the VP of research. It's not enough as he's discussing this issue of inc- um, becoming more inclusive and becoming more multiracial. This is one of the things uh, happening among mega churches. They're increasingly becoming racially diverse. But listen to this quote. It's not enough to state it as a core value, meaning multiracial aspects of churches. It's not enough to agree that it's important. Churches have to take intentional steps to become multiracial, such as the people that are platformed on Sunday mornings. Do they represent the diversity of the neighborhood they're seeking to reach? The staff that's hired in the church and on the board and in the church, are they likewise appropriately diverse? So when we complain about corporations having to have diversity boards, you have to have X number of women and X X number of Asians and X number of homosexuals. You know, this is the stuff we lament in the world. And now they're starting to say we need to do it in the church. Of course, the church is multi-ethnic and multiracial. People from every tribe and every nation will be gathered around the throne of God in heaven, worshiping and praising our Savior. That's the wonderful thing about being united in Jesus Christ. We're one in Christ Jesus, but we don't do racial quotas in churches. This is worldly stuff. This is worldly stuff. That's not how you staff the church. You staff the church based on what you see as the qualifications for pastors in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. The Bible already tells you how to find appropriate leadership and appropriate pastor servants to serve in your church. We just don't listen to it. Because we want the guy in the tight T-shirt and the Madonna microphone and the skinny jeans who's cool and can hang with celebrities. He's cool. He has a lot of big book deals. He does all kinds of huge conferences, and he's got millions of followers on Facebook. That's what matters now. Then you have Christianity Today. When culture tilts away from your church, there's been an avalanche of stories of late getting into all of this. And this writer says, what do we do when going to church becomes a social disadvantage? That's a worldly question, isn't it? The church should always be at a social disadvantage in most cases because we are presenting a stumbling block to the world. Jesus Christ and him crucified and only those who belong to Jesus Christ and those whom he has you know, elected from the foundation of the world will believe in him. And so we know that the gospel will not be popular. Narrow is the way that leads to life and few there are who find it. But the whole premise of this is we need a new way of doing church. We need a new kind of pastor. Do we? Here's my argument. In becoming like the world, we've become no good to the world. Think about the colonial pastors of the Black Robed Regiment during the American Revolution. Those pastors were so much of the reason why we were able to win the American Revolution, because the Christians had a lot to do with driving the momentum of understanding we need to fight for our freedom from the British. We don't have that now. We have Beth Moore lecturing us about Christian nationalism being not of God. What are her credentials for deciding what is of God and what is not of God when it comes to a political philosophy? Do you know anything about American history, Beth Moore? Do you know anything at all about the civic background of the United States? Have you ever read the Federalist Papers? Have you ever read the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? Have you ever read the biographies of these great men who handed down this nation to us, these brilliant men in Philadelphia? I don't know. Maybe she's a political genius and she just hasn't revealed it, but it makes me upset because there are so many people who will just go, well, she's a celebrity and she says Christian nationalism is not of God. What is Christian nationalism? What is it? 
it's a leftist insult is what it is. If you believe that America should be free and a sovereign nation and free from global forces and the social justice, critical race theory nonsense is terrible and that socialism is dangerous. I guess you're a Christian nationalist. But frankly, if that's what somebody is going to call me, I don't care. Call me whatever you want. I don't care what you call me, but I believe in all of those things and I believe in the founding principles of our Constitution and I will defend them as long as I live. And I will fight for them as long as I live. And I'm not going to be shamed by a women's Bible study teacher who went woke. I'm not going to be lectured by somebody like that, nor should you or anybody else. You know, I think we don't need a new way of doing church. We don't need to be cool. We don't need to be entertainment centered. That's how we got into this mess. That's how we got into this mess. That's why we have so many scandals. That's why we have so much tragedy. That's why we have so many people who don't know the Bible and there's so much Bible illiteracy. We need the old way of doing church. Gospel preaching, Bible believing, sin confessing, praise offering, God honoring, reverent. We need the old kind of pastor, the one who loves Jesus Christ, a man of impeccable character, the kind who pursues holiness and godliness and stands with and for Jesus Christ and God's people and trembles at God's word. And you know what? We need the old kind of Christian, the truly born again kind who is sold out to Jesus Christ, who is truly living in the fear of the Lord, who is truly devoted to the Lord in Bible reading and prayer and sharing the gospel, who doesn't care about being cool, who wants to be faithful to Jesus Christ no matter what, even when he has to suffer and be insulted or even be persecuted for doing it. And if we don't turn into those kinds of Christians, it's not going to get any better. When you go back to the word of God, I go back to Jeremiah 3. And starting in verse six about Judah following Israel's example, Israel was faithless and then Judah followed suit. And and God says, uh, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, O faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will no longer look on you with anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And I believe that there is a parallel even though he's dealing with Israel and Judah in that passage, in particular Judah, there's a parallel for us. If we will repent of our backsliding, repent of our fascination with the world and being cool and being everything we can possibly be to the fallen man while neglecting the important things of the saved man, then maybe the Lord will have mercy on us again. Maybe he will give us shepherds after his own heart because right now, God bless the small pastors and the small churches and some in bigger churches. I know you're out there and I know you are faithful to the Lord, but that is not a widespread situation. And I think we all know that. We need shepherds after God's heart. 
ones who will feed us with knowledge and understanding. And that doesn't just mean that they will preach the word in season and out of season, which is, of course, a requirement of somebody who takes the pulpit. But it is also incumbent upon these men to preach the word and apply it in the situation in which we find ourselves. And who knows where we will find ourselves in the next several years? I don't know where it's going, but I know the Lord is faithful. And I know he has called us to be faithful no matter what our political circumstances are. I am just done watching people represent Christianity who are a travesty. I'm getting tired of seeing it, aren't you? I'm getting tired of people falling into scandalous sin and adultery and embezzlement and plagiarism and, and all kinds of immoral deeds. It's, it's despicable. And we don't want to talk about it, but we better. And, and it begins by repenting repenting and saying, Lord, we want to be faithful. Give us faithful shepherds once again. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today. Stay with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. For more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. What do you do if you become a slave to your smartphone? Well, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you might say, I am not a slave to my phone. But is that true for your teenager? Likely not. Even if both you and your teen are overly attached to your screens, you can be screen wise and connect with the people around you more effectively. Joining me now is author and youth culture expert Jonathan McKee, and he is here to talk about this, along with his latest book, Teen's Guide to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World, 40 Tips to Meaningful Communication. And Jonathan, it's great to talk to you again. How are you? Oh, man, I am good. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's very good to be here. Well, thank you. I, I think this book is kind of interestingly timed since a lot of us could use more face-to-face communication right now. Uh, everything seems to be on Zoom. W- what do you make about this whole plot twist on your thesis that young adults need more face-to-face <laughs> contact when that's exactly what everybody seems to want right now. Exactly. No, it is It is interesting how timely the book is actually uh, became. But I think more, even more interesting is the fact that even, you know, pre-COVID, there was this kind of um, this desire from teens to connect face-to-face. And I know sometimes adults would tend to be skeptical there and say, man, you know, I know that with my own teenager that Every time I look at him, he's just staring at his device, and I can't, you know, won't even pry his eyes up from his device. You know, I I hear that a lot, you know, Um, and two things to consider. One, the fact that we as adults actually, according to most studies, the guys who actually count up the numbers and add up how much screen time we spend per day, most adults actually clock in more screen time than teenagers. Wow. That's right. More screen time when you <laughs> add up the TV and the phone and all that stuff. You know, the other thing that's interesting is um, 
when teenagers were actually surveyed um, about this and saying, you know, hey, how much do you, you know, how do you feel about the amount of screen time you're spending and all that kind of stuff, um, teenagers were actually um, uh, said, as a matter of fact, almost 70% of them said, I would actually prefer to spend more time face to face than screen to screen. And that was, that was pre, that was just going into COVID. Wow. So now, of course, in COVID, I think it's almost been proven because we're starting to see a lot of people getting restless and we're seeing teenagers say, well, of course I'd rather be hanging out with my friends than this. You know, we, we, we see that restlessness so evident. And um, it's one of those things where I think they want to, but they don't necessarily know how. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why we wrote this book is to, to kind of start engaging in these conversations about what does this actually look like? Yeah, it, it, that's a really important point that COVID has really made a lot of teenagers more aware that face-to-face isn't so bad. It's actually preferable when you're not allowed to do it as much as you were pre-pandemic. This is interesting, though, because you are tackling this subject with the help of your daughter, Alyssa. Can you talk a little bit about Alyssa's experience? Because I know she took a break from Instagram. She's a young adult herself. Uh, what sorts of experiences did she have that impacted the way that you're addressing the issue in the book? Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. Because basically what we, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was fun writing with her because, you know, very unique. You know, I've got a 20 something writing it with me. And one of the things is she was actually born in 1995. And that, and that puts her in a unique time. And a lot of people be like, well, what's so special about that? Well, what it did is it put her in 2012 in her junior and her senior year of high school. Hmm. Now, 2012 is not only the year that America crossed the 50% mark for everybody having smartphones in their pocket. So, so picture what that looked like on a typical high school campus. All of a sudden, by her junior and senior year, there was this transition from the old just texting and talking phones to smartphones. That was happening during her junior and senior year. Not only that, 2012 was also the year that Snapchat came out. It was the year that Instagram became a thing. So what she basically noticed was all of a sudden in 2012, her junior and senior year, also she noticed this transition that basically changed communication as we know it. You know, there's less talking face-to-face, more heads buried in Instagram, more DMs being sent. You know, um, she even said that, you know, car rides that used to be kind of full of conversation were kind of a little bit more people with their heads now buried because they had social media in their pocket. So for her, it was a big change. And one of the things she talked about in her um, chapter titled Instagratification is she talked specifically about the effects of social media on her. And she talked and she gave examples of what that looked like. And I, I love having a young person's perspective because for her, you know, one of the things she did, she um, described a day where she was hanging out with her friends and they were going to do this fun road trip where they were going to this fun event. There was, a, you know, at the beach. And, and she said for her and her friends, it was crazy because they almost spent more time trying to find the insta perfect picture mm-hmm. instead of actually enjoying the event. Yeah. And then she said that when they were posting the pics that they made him they made her feel terrible about herself because she thought, man, I don't look good, everybody else looks better. And for her the whole day just made her feel it, it, she said it took me to some unhealthy places. Yeah. And, and and she's not down on the phone. She's not even specifically down on Instagram, but for her she said it was time for a change, so she just decided, I'm going to take a fast 
from Instagram, and she took a break. She decided to take a break for a year. And she goes into much more detail in the book, and she talks about it. But it was fascinating to see because also for her, as much like I love it, later in the book she describes this day where she's hanging out with her friends and she's driving with this one particular friend in a convertible. And as they're driving down the road, wind whipping through their hair, she says it was so nice not having the pressure to post the picture, <laughs> but to just enjoy the moment. Yeah, And what that's why we wrote the book to start talking about that stuff. You know, I, I really understand that because the world has changed a lot. I know my husband and I have both observed that had we gotten engaged in the Instagram era, we would have been hating it because we're not the selfie sorts. We're not really into that or getting a perfect picture <laughs> of him proposing on the beach or anything like that. And I thought, yeah, but, yeah I mean, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's just not my generation's way of getting engaged because we didn't have that kind of stuff. But, but, but this is a, a, a pressure point. I think you've brought up something very important and your daughter has too the pressure point of feeling like because of what I see on my smartphone particularly the social media it just makes you think a different way it, it makes you insecure in different ways and we've seen a lot of this I think especially with girls haven't we this pressure to look yeah. perfect and to be like we, we already had that with magazine covers now it's just taken up about 40 notches yeah, no, absolutely. And the, and the pressure is having effects on kids in different ways. And we're seeing it, um, we're, we're seeing it affecting their mental health. We're seeing it affect their physical well-being because some of the dangers they're putting themselves into. The, the mental health thing is an interesting thing because when you look at that, um, there was actually a bunch of experts who decided to, to kind of clear the record there. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, right Going into COVID and through the beginning of COVID, Dr. Gene Twinge and Dr. Jonathan Haidt, they decided to get together and say, okay, let's, let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's set the record straight because there was kind of some debate about, well, you know, is, is it really, um, you know, is screen time affecting young people's mental health? And, and there was some debate. There were some people saying, come on, you know, does how much time my daughter spends, you know, watching Netflix or my son you know, uh, playing video games, does that really affect them? And what they decided to do is they said, let's look at this and let they created an open source document and said, everybody chime in with your findings. Let's look at this and let's see exactly how much this affects people. The fascinating thing was they, not so much what they disagree on, but what they agreed on. All the experts, when they really pooled their data together and looked, they said, okay, what do we agree on? And what they agreed on was two things. One, there was a mental health crisis going into COVID. This is pre-COVID. There was a mental health crisis uh, going on right now where we're seeing, you know, suicide, anxiety, um, all this stuff spiking like like none before at, at astronomical levels. The second thing they all agreed on is that when you look at screen time in general, it wasn't necessarily such clear data that Netflix or video games really affect young people. But when you narrow the search to just the effects of social media, specifically on girls, the data is clear and conclusive. Goodness. Hang on a moment, Jonathan. Hang on just a second. I'm so sorry. We have to run to a very quick break. We'll pick up the conversation right after this with Jonathan McKee, Teen's Guide to -to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World. Stay with us.
Did you know that Bible-less believers around the world are praying to receive their very own copy of God's Word? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send those Bibles today. Hear from Meng in Vietnam. If they don't have Bible, how they can find the truth? Because the Bible like a map to bring them to find the truth. And many people, they are really uh, hungry for the Word of God, and then they need the Bible. Nepo is a pastor in Ghana praying for Bibles for former Muslim radicals now following Christ. Anna was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Albania, but her godly witness changed his heart, and now he needs a Bible. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by terrorists in Mexico, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with others. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word? $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 yes word 800 yes word 800 yes word or there's a banner to click at janetmeffer.com are you in need of a health care program you're in luck as a member of liberty health share you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses you can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month and there are no contracts or commitments Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Jonathan McKee is here, author and youth culture expert. You can find more at thesourceforparents.com. That's the website, and it is the number four, thesourceforparents.com. He and his daughter, Alyssa McKee, are out with a great book, Teen's Guide to -to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World, and these are 40 Tips to Meaningful Communication. Jonathan, before we went to the break, you were talking about some of the data on this issue of screen time affecting mental health, and you were talking about the aspect of this data that pertains to social media, when you really focus on social media, what kind of effect does that have on teenagers, specifically the girls? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy when you look at it, because, again, it's not so much how much screen time they're spending. All screen time is not created equal. It's not how much time they're spending on Netflix. It's not how much you know time they're spending video gaming or whatever. But social media in particular is, pu- is creating a pressurized environment for young people. And so because of that, we're starting to see some of these spikes in depression and anxiety, suicide attempts. I mean, um, a lot of people have seen the recent uh, Netflix special um, called The Social Dilemma. And as a matter of fact, that same doctor, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, was one of the guys there talking about the effects of anxiety on young people there and what we're starting to see. So as parents, we need to start paying attention to this. And one of the things we need to do is we need to start creating conversations. And so that's honestly why my daughter and I wrote this book. We thought, you know, sometimes parents would love to talk about this, but they don't know exactly how right. to talk about it. They don't know what to say. I mean, what do you just say? Phones are bad. Oh, excuse me. I got to take this. I'm on my own phone. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hypocritical. Yeah. So, so this is a this is a way for us to kind of create a conversation. And because, uh, I mean, each chapter we wrote, 
is kind of talking about some of the things that are going on here. And then we have discussion questions at the end of each chapter so that, that you can dialogue about what this looks like. Well, this is important. And, you know, here I'm showing my dinosaur cred here. But, you know, the, the things that I say to my kids often is, do any of you people actually talk on the phone anymore? <laughs> I mean, do we really need the phone aspect of the phone? Because it doesn't seem, apart from the Internet and apart from the texting, that there's much usage of the phone. And I'm told, oh, no, we don't talk on the phone anymore. But, I mean, what about that? What about going back to talking on the phone? It would seem that having, even if you're not able to be face-to-face, having an actual conversation is preferable to everything being online. How, how do you weigh in on that particular issue? Yeah, well, you know, we talked about that in the book. As a matter of fact, one thing we did is we uh, weighed the difference between um, texting, talking, FaceTime, and then good old-fashioned face-to-face, like yeah. the person that's right there in front of you. And one of, the, one of the things we kept saying over and over again in the book is, you know, hey, uh, this phone's a great tool for connecting with people outside the room when it doesn't interfere with our relationship with the people inside the room. Yeah. And, and again, that, that's one of the things we're, we're, we're saying, don't, don't throw this thing away. We're not saying that the phone's a bad tool. It actually can be a very effective tool. But... You know, sometimes we just need to put the thing in our pocket and enjoy the person that's right there in front of us. That's good advice. That's good advice. Although sometimes it is difficult for even adults to be able to do that. What about the issue of addiction? Addiction to your phone? Because I've seen articles along those lines and concerns that some experts have raised about the fact that social media in particular is designed to keep you addicted. It's like the Lay's potato chips of your smartphone in a way. You know, there's stuff built into the system to keep, keep you coming back. What do you do about that? Yeah, there's fascinating research, and we talk a little bit about the dopamine hits and, and what it does to your brain, because in essence, you know, there are certain things out there like a slot machine, for example, you know, um, that is kind of designed to kind of get you to anticipate the next great thing. And when you look at some of the stuff that um, um, that that people that design social media, and again, that's, that's where that, uh, that documentary on Netflix is fascinating, because they talked about that you literally saw people that, that designed some of this stuff admitting they're on film saying, oh, yeah, yeah, my job was to try to get people to stay on our app <laughs> as long as possible. <laughs> so when you're seeing the effects of this, and we live right now, we live in a country where 79% of teenagers take their phone into the bedroom with them at night, every night, 79%. And our family doctor forever has been saying, no screens in the bedroom. Well, eight out of 10 parents are not listening to that advice, yeah. you know, because yeah. eight out of 10 young people are sitting there saying, no, let me just, let me bring this phone into the bedroom with me at night. It's not a good idea. So we talk with young people about this. This is a book addressed to young people. And we say, hey, have you thought about, you know, what this is doing in your brain? Have you thought about how this affects your sleep? Have you thought about how this affects your relationships? Instead of just telling kids what to do, because no kid wants to be told what to do. We give some information. We tell tons of stories throughout the book and basically say, okay, hey, take a look at this. What do you think? And then again, we provide discussion questions because this is something where we hope that young people will talk with their friends about. We hope that mom and dad won't just hand this book to their kids, but they'll better yet say, 
hey, let's go to breakfast this Tuesday and, and let's talk about this. Yep. Let's talk about the effects of this on our conversation. And that's what we want to do. We want to create conversation. Well, and Jonathan, when you were making the point about phones being a good tool, but they shouldn't interfere with connecting to people who are there physically with you in the room. And one of the things you, you cite in here is the passage in Luke 10 with Jesus and Mary and Martha. And, you know, the Lord says, you know, you're worried and upset about many things, Martha, but few things are needed. Only one thing is needed. What about the effect on your spiritual growth as a young Christian? I'm thinking of all of this data that's come out about biblical illiteracy and how little people are reading, but in particular, people who are professing Christians are neglecting their Bibles. I mean, it, it seems to me that it would be awfully easy to play on social media more than doing you know, the harder work, but the more necessary work of spending time with the Lord. H- how do you see that kind of weighing in on, on this whole influence that we see of smartphones and screens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it it obviously has an effect, and, and we're seeing it big time. You know, not only can the phone be a distraction, but, you know, it, it kind of in a way creates sometimes when we don't have to deal with hard situations. There's, it's funny how in team circles there's a there's an unspoken rule of three. If you're standing there in a conversation, there's at least three people or more if two people are engaging in a conversation and the third people has been out of the conversation, it's socially acceptable for them to pick up their phone and look at it yeah. because the other two are talking. That's called the rule of three. And it's interesting because in the past where someone would be standing there and they would probably, you know, kind of in a way feel like, well, maybe I should engage in the conversation. Maybe I do something because I'm just standing here. Now, again, it's this escape. It's uh, I can avoid the conversation because I've got this nice little device here that can just that I can go to while I'm distracted, bored, whatever. So it is interesting how we're starting to see, you know, uh, attention span shortened. Um, Does this affect our Bible reading? Absolutely. Now, again, I'm not going to demonize the smartphone because the smartphone happens to have really cool things. I mean, I use a Bible app. And one thing that's cool about the Bible app is Man, you could take notes. You could. My, my wife and I. It's it's awesome. We actually like share these, do these reading plans. And the thing that's so fun is, you know, we can actually comment on the reading plan, and so we send each other notes and that kind of stuff about what we read that day. So these are things that we can actually use, where the phone can be for good. And really, what it comes down to, as mom and dad, what are we modeling with our spiritual lives? Mm-hmm. What are we modeling? Because if we're spending time in the Lord, whether it be reading an analog paper Bible or our digital Bible, you know, if we're spending time with the Lord and we're, you know, uh, getting to know Him and He's affecting us and changing us, that is going to spill over out of our lives. And our kids are going to see that. If we model this kind of conversation in our homes, if we say, hey, no tech at the table. And we model what good conversation across the dinner table looks like and talking about spiritual things and talking about what's going on in our own life, not just, you know, modeling it and talking about it. Um, This is the kind of stuff that's going to impact our family big time. But if we ourselves are so distracted to our devices that we're ignoring some of these needs of our kids, it's absolutely going to have an effect. Well, right. And you've mentioned something that's very simple people can all do, which is to say no screens at the table when we're having dinner together or maybe we're having lunch together. We can't have our phones at the table. 
And life will go on. If somebody calls, you can call them back after lunch or after dinner. You know, these sorts of things. It seems maybe going in these very small steps, you can make small changes. But I think that, you know, the goal is really important, Jonathan, and that is to try to connect people, especially your teenagers, with other people and not always having to pick up the smartphone or go to Instagram or Snapchat or any of the other social media sites in order to make that happen. Well, you can learn more with the Teens Guide to face-to-face connections in a screen-to-screen world by Jonathan McKee and his daughter Alyssa. And again, if you'd like to check out more about Jonathan's ministry, you can do so by going to his website, and that is becomingscreenwise.com. Jonathan, so good to have you here, and we're really appreciative of your work and, and being with us today. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Take care. God bless you. And thanks for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time as well. God bless you.